Hey, Star Trek fans, it's Clyde here. If you like sci-fi, and we've talked about it a number of times on our show, but if you want to hear Mike Moody Garcia and I talk about Stargate SG-1, the essential episodes, then check out our new podcast, Intergalactic. Head over to intergalacticpod.co. Check us out and come along and watch and listen and give us some feedback on Stargate SG-1. Here's our first episode on Stargate the movie. Take a listen. Hey, this is Mike, and welcome to the first episode of Intergalactic, a podcast about the most essential entries from the best sci-fi and TV film franchises of all time. I'm here with my co-host, Clyde. What's up, Clyde? Hey, Mike. Glad to be here with you. Can't wait to talk about some sci-fi with you, man. We're going to talk about Stargate, man. We're talking about specifically the 1994 Stargate movie starring uh, James Spader, a very young James Spader. Was that a wig he was wearing? Is that like his actual hair? I don't know, but you know, I was watching this on Amazon Prime. And so when you pause it, the little pro, like the little x-ray comes up with their picture. Yeah. And so it comes up and it's like the the picture of him from like the blacklist. And so I'm looking at him in screen. Like, who is this old woman <laughs> on this thumbnail? I'm like, I know it's James Spader, but it's it was just like until you see that and go, oh my goodness, like this is like a really, really young James Spader. Age comes for us all. Yes. In sci-fi and and in real life. They say time. Is the fire in which we burn. Uh, this movie also stars Kurt Russell. Uh, yeah, so we're doing this to kick off a podcast series here on Intergalactic. We're calling Essential Stargate, in which we plan to review all of the essential entries in the long, 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 long running Stargate TV franchise. So we're not covering all of the Stargate episodes because that would lead us to an early grave, but this is. This is the essential episodes, right? The best of the series. So we're covering the essential episodes. So that's why we're starting with the 1994 movie, which kind of kicked off the whole thing. I think even though there's so many differences and discrepancies between the movie and Stargate SG-1, the show, which we'll dive into in the coming weeks, even though there's so many differences, I think it's really essential to start with the movie because... After I watched this movie for the first time in like 20 years, a few days ago, I decided to watch Children of the Gods, which is uh -huh. the first, the the premiere episode of SG-1. And that two-hour episode works like a direct sequel to this movie. Like, I would have been lost if I hadn't watched Stargate 1994 before watching Children of the Gods. So I think it's really essential to watch this movie before you're doing your SG-1 rewatch or starting SG-1 for the first time. I mean, you can go and read the Wikipedia or whatever, but I think it's a much richer experience if you watch the movie. You're, you're absolutely right, Mike. I think, you know, having done this a couple times now, because uh, I really do enjoy this franchise, Children of the God and SG-1 is phenomenal, and I love the characters. But this movie really gives you an understanding of the background of the characters, why the things they do and the choices they make matter. It does feel like you will have skipped a whole season if you jump in at Children 
uh, Children of the Gods. Um, and you're right. They rework the mythology quite a bit. And I'll be honest, as we get there, I think their selection and their choices were spot on. I think they made some some excellent decisions. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't take away anything from this movie as a whole. Yeah, no, I agree. So, listeners, if you're following along with our our Stargate SG-1 watch, we're following a list that GateWorld.net put together. They put together a, a list of the key SG-1 episodes. So after this movie, we'll dive into Children of the Gods and then move on to Episode 2. Then we're going to jump all the way to Episode 7. We're going to cover roughly 12 episodes of SG-1 the essential 12 that kind of gives you the story of the season and hopefully we'll go on and do more. So let's kick things off. Stargate 1994. Throw a door to heaven is Stargate. I didn't watch this movie when it, was in theaters. I guess I was in middle school, but I loved sci-fi as a kid, but this thing didn't appeal to me for some reason. I think it was kind of the setting, you know, the whole like sandals and sand thing. Like I wanted more of a, I was more of a space guy. Right. Did you watch this when it came out? No, our listeners don't know this about me. They may not know this about me, but you know, like I'm a space opera guy, right? Yeah. So as you, as we go through this and whatever we do, Here's the basics if you're listening. I am sold on a team up, a spaceship, and spaceship battles, right? That's those are the three hallmarks of things I love. And so this didn't seem anything like that to me. I didn't even know about this. It was so far not on my radar. I was hanging out at a buddy's house back when kids used to hang out at, at friends' houses. We were hanging out and I walked in he and his dad were watching SG one and I was like, Oh, what's this? And they looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, what? they were like, what? They were like, you don't know what this is. And I was like, no, like what happened? Like fill me and I'll catch up. Do you not know the gospel son? They were like, absolutely not. So they stopped what they were doing and they went, this is back in 1994. So it's like, this was like 1996 or 1998 or something like that. So they pull out a VHS tape. And they put in this movie and they go, just sit down and watch this. And so for the next two hours, I was hooked, like absolutely just mesmerized. And I was like, this is, this is amazing. Hell yeah. Well, I didn't watch this till, um, I guess I was in my twenties or so. And then I just revisited it for the first time last night or two nights ago. But let, let's, let's do a breakdown of the synopsis. So an interstellar teleportation device found in Egypt leads to a planet with humans resembling ancient Egyptians who worship the god Ra. All right, so this is a movie that kicked off the franchise, of course, uh, released theatrically on October 28th, 1994 by MGM. We get the grand roaring lion at the beginning of the movie. Uh, directed by Roland Emmerich. Clyde, are you familiar with uh, Sir Roland Emmerich? I, I am, but not by name, right? So when I look at his filmography, I'm like, oh yeah, I know this dude. But if you were just talk to me, be like, hey, do you know about Roland? I would, I would not. You know a Roland Emmerich movie when you see one. They're all designed to be these big blockbuster action sci-fi spectacles that are kind of silly, kind of corny, but like kind of pulpy in an awesome way. 
and they always offer like some pretty iconic imagery like um I, I guess the biggest one what is independence day welcome to earth he did universal soldier day after tomorrow most recently moonfall um, the 1998 Godzilla movie, which I've steered clear of my entire life because that just looks awful. Can't win them all. Roland Emmerich is like hit and miss, right? But but he he knows how to make some pretty iconic imagery with all the explosions and shots of cities blowing up and landscapes being obliterated in all his movies. So uh, there's definitely that sci-fi spectacle to this movie. Well, that's it, right? Like his movies, are, I agree, maybe hit or miss. But what I appreciate is a director who knows sci-fi. Like, if you slap up the Independence Day poster, you know exactly what you're, wh- what it is. Like, Universal Soldier wasn't a great movie, but I know that poster, man. There's some elements of it. I'm like, yo, this is, this is true sci-fi. So I'm on board. I really am on board. The man can sell a concept. He can definitely sell a concept and, and slap it on a poster. Um, so he co-wrote the movie with Dean Devlin, his writing partner he worked a lot with during his career. Again, starring Kurt Russell, James Spader, uh, Jay Davidson from The Crying Game as the sun god Raw, uh, French Stewart, Spaghetti Arms French Stewart, uh, playing a, a Air Force uh, badass somehow. I mean, comments on French Stewart? Look, he's he, first of all, I thought he was funny. So we'll get into that later. But all right. If nothing else, he was in Third Rock for the Sun. Like he has all the cred I, I, you need it because he's played a space alien before. So I was like, <laughs> okay, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go with it. Was this before Third Rock or right in the middle? This was, I don't this, know. I think it was like before. Yeah, it's probably it's hard to know the timeline. Uh, Alexis Cruz. Demon Huntsu in a like small non-speaking role. Uh just goes by Demon, uh, credited as Demon in this in this movie. Stargate was actually originally planned as a three-film trilogy or franchise. Um, but Roland Emmerich got involved in other projects, Independence Day, Godzilla, a, a million other movies where landscapes explode. So they they kind of abandon it. There's been talk over the past decade that Devlin and Emmerich want to bring back the Stargate film franchise and completely ignore the SG-1 or the Stargate Atlantis or the Stargate Universe continuity. Fans are like of two minds about this. I'm kind of okay with there being like two different, you know, continuities out there, like a, a big screen, and small screen. Would you want to see that happen? Like a, a film continuation of this movie? No. It's not into it. Here's the thing. In order for, for it to work for me, you'd have to do some type of mirror verse or something that I'd have to really buy into. And to your point, like a Kelvin verse, something, yeah, something like that. But the Children of the Gods was such a great movie sequel. It just, it, it really kicked off everything that came after it. So I, I don't know that I need it. it, it I say no. But you mentioned Kelvin verse. Mm-hmm. And when they first said they were rebooting Star Trek, I was like, oh, I don't know about this. I don't have a good feeling about this. Like, I just like, why are you touching? Why are you touching Star Trek? And Star Trek was amazing. Like, like JJ Abrams did a phenomenal job. So I, I, I'll reserve to say I'm not excited about this notion, but if done really well, cause you'd have to recast just about everybody. Yeah, or just catch up with Spader and Kurt Russell as old men, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Not too excited about that. Maybe maybe a legacy sequel where they're handing it off to a younger cast or something. Yeah. I don't know. I think that would just kind of confuse the marketplace, though, because there is like almost 400 hours of Stargate TV that they would kind of just be wiping away or not referencing. And I think the the marketplace would be like, okay, what am I supposed to do? I have to watch all these shows to watch this movie? Like, it might be confusing. Yeah. But they're probably not going to do it. They were talking about that, like the last few Comic-Cons, they've been talking about that. But there's ever since the pandemic, there's really been been nothing. Now we're in a strike. So I doubt we'll ever get anything. Hopefully we will get a new Stargate series sometime soon. That's something we'll be kind of following as we do our, our Stargate series here. But this movie was a hit. I mean, worldwide international box office, almost 200 million for 1994. Like, that is massive. And I think it had a... $40 million budget. So definitely was a sleeper hit. No one kind of, no one really thought this movie was going to make a dent in the box office, but it ended up keeping the top spot for several weeks and just kind of killed at the box office. We're going to go to the whole movie, Clyde, but tell me, um, I'm kind of already feeling, feeling your love for the movie, but tell me, what do you think about this movie, Clyde? Look, Mike, I really did enjoy it. Like I said, when I, when I first watched it, you know, I sat there, I went over to hang out with my buddy and I just sat there in his living room watching this and trying to figure out where was I when this, how did I miss this? It was really amazing to experience. It's true sci-fi. You know, when I first saw it, it has- How a, old were you when you, when you saw it? When I first saw it, I had to be about like 16, 17, maybe. Okay. That's a good age for this. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the interesting thing about it is it's got a, an Indiana Jones kind of feel to it when it first starts. Um, so you don't even know in the first few scenes that it is sci-fi, right? You're like, okay, this is, I've seen this. This is Raiders of the Lost Ark. I got you. And then it's not. But what it does is it takes the kind of the same premise that Raiders takes, right? But what it does is it rewrites the history and creates this, this new mythology, which I think that's why the the TV franchise was so successful was because what they did in the film is they created such a framework that you could have a trilogy. Like you could have had many, many movies based on this, this idea that, you know, we'll get into it, but this idea that this, you know, what we've known as Egyptian culture is actually something else. Right. And they chose a culture that we know very little about, but is very, deep in a strong sense of, of culture and curiosity. And then you, you start to look at these kind of somewhat interesting characters and Daniel Jackson um, and Colonel um, O'Neill, O'Neill, Colonel O'Neill. Yeah. It's just, it, it, I, I enjoyed it. Like I I've, I've seen it a few times since, since the first time I've gone back and rewatched the series. And I feel like from a rewatch the series, I have to start with the movie, but I just enjoy it. Like it's, it's definitely one of those that's in my like, you know, back when I actually collected DVDs, it was in my collection. Yeah, I, I like this movie. I think it has definitely its problems, its issues. Like, it has a pretty bare-bones script. And I forgot who said this, but they were praising this movie, a critic online. And they were they loved the movie. They were praising it. And they're like, the great thing about this movie is not necessarily the content of the movie, but the concept of the movie. Yes, And Roland Emmerich really knows how to... To get a script that has some good ideas, but it's not necessarily very deep 
and just infuse it with this grand depth of lush old Hollywood epic style. That really comes across in this movie. And it's something that I really appreciated in my recent watch. Like this felt like a grand, like old fashioned epic. And a lot of that has to do with, um, obviously Roland, Roland Emmerich is a, a great visual stylist and a really great technical director. Everything looks amazing. It almost looks like you're watching an old fashioned 70 millimeter sand and sandal chariot movie. Like it's, it's yeah. beautiful. These, these, vistas of the desert and these pyramids and then you add the sci-fi stuff in and the effects hold up pretty well uh they're not bad they're really good they're they're a little better than what i saw in children of the gods so which came like five years later but i think yeah the the way this movie is packaged and delivered especially with the visuals and especially with the score that score i think elevates this to another level it's a beautiful score uh, it's one of the best things about this movie. It conjures like this sense of wonder and awe. And I read something cool about the score. It's composed by this guy named David Arnold. He was working at a video store and he uh, he was a part-time composer. And he heard about this movie being made and he wrote a score for it. He He got a hold of the script and he really keyed in on the character of Daniel Jackson, which... Which probably means David Arnold is a huge nerd. Because if you're a huge nerd and you watch this movie, you're like, that's your guy, Daniel Jackson. You like identify with him. I know I do, anyway. Yes. Um, Cold? Allergies. This happens when I travel. He keyed in on that character and he wrote the score to reflect the character of Daniel Jackson as a dreamer who moves forward with a sense of exploration and wonder and awe at the mysteries of the universe. And that's what you get in the score, right? Like every time you see something amazing on screen, it's backed up by this great symphonic, like old fashioned score and just elevates the movie. So I love that. I love all the visuals and the sound of this movie. Technically, this is a a really wonderful motion picture. You know, I couldn't agree with you more, Mike. I think the work that comes to mind with to me when I think about the sound is grand. It's not so much a soundtrack. It's not they're not songs, but it's it's a score. It's music that heightens and emphasizes and illustrates through audio what you're seeing and really what what you're what you should be experiencing emotionally in the in the film. And it's it's absolutely fantastic. It's true. It heightens the emotion because like the characters are drawn pretty thinly. Like, thank God for James Spader. His performance is great. He's so enthusiastic and energetic in this movie. He carries the movie. He really like pulls you in with his performance and the whole thing about Daniel Jackson being this dreamer who uh, has all these wild ideas, but is always like so enthusiastic, right? Nothing really brings him down. Uh, Kurt Russell is kind of playing against type. He's like, Pretty downbeat and weird, but still ends up being pretty cool at the end. I was kind of iffy on his character towards until the halfway mark, I think. But another thing that helps this movie, it's like it's super fast paced. The plot does get convoluted here and there. And a lot of stuff happens because the movie needs it to happen, uh, you know, which is par for the course for a Roland Emmerich 1990, you know, blockbuster. But 
I think the score, the cinematography, especially James Spader's performance, just lifts it all up and makes it something that is super rewatchable. Yeah, it's got a, a bit of a space western kind of component to it. Yeah, I like what you said about the Indiana Jones thing. Like we start out with like archaeology and yeah, it's very like Indiana Jones meets Star Wars meets Star Trek, which is pretty unique. So let's jump let's let's go to this movie. So we open in 1927 Giza, Egypt. There's an archaeological dig taking place where Professor Paul Langford discovers an artifact, a large metal ring with symbols all along the edge that has been protected by cover stones. His young daughter, Catherine, acquires an amulet from the dig. So what we watched on Amazon Prime right now opens this way with the uh, flashback to the 20s and the dig. There is a 15th anniversary director's cut that opens with a flashback even further back with Raw possessing the boy that mm. he th- whose body he possesses. I haven't seen that, but I heard that's that's a longer cut of the movie. Have have you seen that, the director's cut? I have not. Um we get a little bit of that later on in the movie. Yeah. I like holding that as a reveal. So I like this as Yeah. Cuz again, like I've said, and I'll probably say again, it does have that Indiana Jones feel when you open in Giza. I really expected um, Indiana Jones' sidekick to run out at any any moment yelling, Indy, Indy. But like, that's <laughs> the feel that I had. But I like that feel. So anytime I see that, it's like, okay, this is archaeo- This is cool archaeology, right? This yeah. Is, this is something exciting about to happen. Like, you can just feel it. And it's definitely representing the uh, 1920s. Uh, pretty well when you get the uh, the Egyptian man uh, doing all the work and finding the Stargate and running over to the white man saying, look what you found. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> so, you know. It, it, it is fascinating to to look at something from 1994 through a new cultural lens mm-hmm. um, and through a new, I would also say, economic lens because I was thinking, man, you've got all these people who seem like they're local from the, the region doing this dig what are you paying them is it a fair rate like like it's funny that my mind went there but that's where it went i'm like like how does this work what's the what's the economy of scale like like, that is straight where my mind went to work i'm like these people are probably just working for pails of water well and and you talk about the amulet right like Mm. again she walks over and she looks at it. She picks it up and just walks off with it. And I'm like, <laughs> "Hey, hold hold up a second. Like, here, little little white blonde girl, you obviously deserve this golden amulet right. for no reason. Like, Please take it. Oh, shiny. This is an archaeological dig, right? Yeah. Like anything. Like I get that it, you know her father or whatnot is 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 financing this, but it's kind of like. You don't get to just like walk in and be like, oh, look, it's a gold nugget. I'm just going to put that in my pocket. Like, (laughs) that's not how this works. Yeah, that shit goes in a museum. Okay. Exactly. So we jump to the present or 1994, where Dr. Daniel Jackson, a young, struggling Egyptologist, becomes a laughing stock at one of his educational seminars where he proposes unpopular theories about the building of the Egyptian pyramids. He's confronted by Catherine about a job decoding Egyptian hieroglyphics for the U.S. Air Force. Hey, Clyde, have you spoken in front of crowds before? I have. 
all right, do the people who come see you speak, do they like <laughs> get up, get, do they get up, get dressed, put on a suit, pay money, go to the place only to start heckling you right when you start? That's what's happening here. You suck, you jackass. It was a bunch of people who were trying to tear him down. Like, I get it. That's kind of this movie. This movie is like, here's what you need to understand about this character. He's wacky and kooky and smart, but nobody gets him. But yeah, (laughs) this thing was just uh, wild. It was like, to your point, like what I walked away with his understanding is he knows what no one else knows. They don't believe him. He's right. Everybody else is wrong. That is the basis of what I need to understand about this character got it i walked like i i felt it even if i couldn't actually at the time comprehend what was happening i was like okay i like it i think it's a good way to set up this character it's kind of that loser narrative like bill murray at the beginning of stripes or whatever you know they're all down and out and you're going to follow them throughout the whole thing and they're going to get by with their wit and their pluck well in the case of daniel jackson his his intelligence and his uh eagerness to learn new things right so and I like that he's so into what he's saying, even as everyone is walking out and calling him a piece of shit and being like, fuck you, Jackson. And they're leaving. There's like one guy still there and he, he keeps walking down. And he's like, and he just starts talking to the one guy about all his theories. She's like, well, you're still here. I'm still going to tell you about how aliens built the pyramids. I think what we respond to, particularly as sci-fi people, right? Who are usually not the coolest people, you know, in, in, in the room. Nerds! It's this idea of whether I'm accepted or not, like I'm so passionate and excited about my subject matter and I'm right <laughs> that everyone else looks foolish for not listening to me. Right. That's like a, it's almost like he's, he's cool, even though he's not right. And I think it's just, it's going to build from there as the movie continues. You know, he was just dealing with some hardcore toxic fandom. That's what this was. That's what all solid was. Next, uh, we go dark next, Clyde. We see Colonel Jack O'Neill at home looking extremely depressed, holding a, a gun in his son's bedroom. The movie introduces us to our hero in a suicidal moment. Interesting take. Um, so O'Neill has apparently recently experienced a death of his son who accidentally killed himself with his father's gun. Consequently, O'Neill appears to be in a near catatonic state. Two officers arrive at his home, tell him he's back on active duty for a special mission. Orders from Major General West. So, what other movies introduce their swashbuckling hero (laughs) with essentially a gun to his head and his wife washing the dishes like, our our life is over? (laughs) It's pretty dark. It's very dark. Not, Not only is it dark... You know, we'll get to SG-1 and Children of the Gods some other time. But once you've seen where they take this character, it's even darker when you come back and rewatch it. You're like, wow. Like, they they advance him pretty far. Like, his redemption arc is significant. But here, it's this moment of like, okay. And and to be honest with you, it doesn't make him that likable early on. Yeah, like the any any fondness you have for Colonel O'Neill is earned, right? It, it takes a while to get there, and right now I was like, man, this guy, this is not a guy you want to you want to trust with anything. He's 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 in a dark place. It's a weird role for Russell. Like he, for the most part, I, I picture him playing like heroes, you know, Big Trouble in Little China. Even his character 
McReady in The Thing, who's kind of a stoic, don't fuck with me kind of guy, is still kind of a badass mm-hmm. uh, when you first meet him. And here, you're dealing with a guy who's just on a razor's edge and is about to fall off. It's pretty wild. Um, definitely a different take for him. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The thing that I think was so jarring about this for me is that I'm actually a Kurt Russell fan. Yeah, me too. But even when he's playing Goofy or whatever, the thing that is like a hallmark of a Kurt Russell character is this confidence, the swag, right? And what we see here is someone who is is just beaten down like they're they're literally they're depressed and i don't know that we see too many roles where kurt russell plays depressed you know it's an interest it's a it was an interesting take and a little bit weird but i believed he was depressed i absolutely believed it yes i, I bought that this man was going to kill himself maybe not something i want to see the first nine minutes into my action adventure movie but it does set up an arc right so that's Points, Stargate. Points <laughs> I, for setting up an arc. I gotta be honest, though. Like, they come in and he slides the gun underneath the pillow. And it's like, hey, we need you to come with this. I'm like, you're not leaving the gun there, right? Like, you're just, you know, your wife comes in. She's, you know, she's sitting on the bed or something and finds it like that. No, like, tell me at some point you you took care of that. You put it back okay. in the gun safe. You can leave the gun anywhere. There are no children in the house anymore, Clyde. Yes. They're all, but they're they're all dead. People. <laughs> The worst has happened. All right. Um, the worst has happened. So Daniel Jackson travels to Colorado to work on his new job, which takes place inside a former nuclear missile silo. He examines the cover stones found in 1928. He finds a translation of the hieroglyphics on the inner track to be wrong, and he corrects it, discovering that the portion mistranslated as door to heaven really reads Stargate. I love that start the word Stargate is actually in the text of this movie. Like he translates something and it's like, oh, this says the title of the movie. I actually like no shade. I like that. I like that. That's what these aliens or whoever wrote these texts. Well, we find out who did in the show, right? We, we never do in the movie, but they actually called the Stargate the Stargate. I thought that was cool. It's also just kind of a killer scene where he walks in. And he's he's basically just transcribing everything. And it's like, who transcribed this? And like Richard Friend is like, me, I, I did. Really? Because you're bad at this. <laughs> and so, yeah, think, Richard Kind, Kind, yes, Richard. Kind, kind. Yeah. Oh, that was me. I translated it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so to end that like phrase with Stargate, almost. You know, despite that we have this long kind of intro, if if this was a movie that was done today, that is the moment where you would have gotten the title card, right? And the music would have come in like right. that was that was perfect. I kind of like that. So it's good. It's weird that these people discovered this thing in the twenties, and they say they've been working on it. This team that Jackson meets has been working on it for only two years, and he cracks it in about a week. Then they go through the gate. Like you'd think somebody would have figured this out with between 1928 and 1994, but you know, it's a movie. Well, they're setting us up. So, and you know, I know this, but they're setting us up to show that he's indispensable. He's right. the guy, right? That his mind, as goofy and weird as he may be, 
he his mind works differently from anyone else's. So I kind of talked about it next. Uh, General West reveals to Jackson the the actual Stargate itself after Jackson quickly discovers which symbol on the gate is the point of origin. The gate is activated, creating a wormhole between it and the other gate, quote, on the other side of the known universe. So the Air Force sends a probe to the gate, revealing the planet on the other side can support human life. I love the scene where they have that, and they do this in the show too, they have that uh, transparent like map, the, the little device that shows where the Stargate ends up, just moves, and it moves all across the galaxy. And you're like, wait, is this going to another planet? And it it just kind of goes, circles the galaxy and ends up in some other world. I thought that was pretty wild. It's pretty like cool visual um, way to illustrate like just how crazy this movie's getting in terms of like, oh, we found this crazy artifact and now we're actually going to go into outer space and to some other planet. It did a great job of explaining the science in a way that was accessible for anyone. It was like, boom. And I thought that was effective. I thought it was very effective. Yeah, it works for the movie. And the movie is super fast paced. It's like they just want to get you into the action. So this this whole discovery phase of what the Stargate is and does moves pretty quickly. And it, it is kind of it builds. It's real fun and surprising. It is kind of weird that they could have just gotten like a safe cracker to do this because like they, you know, they they found the first six symbols. They just didn't know which one was the seventh. And like, there's an infinite number of symbols. You can just try all of them. But yeah, so that is one of the many things that doesn't make sense in this movie. But Roland Emmerich and the score and the acting just sells it and you kind of don't care, right? You're just like, yeah, I'm going with this. So... Next, O'Neill is supposed to lead a reconnaissance team through the gate, but the symbols of the gate on the other side are different, which would make it impossible for the team to return to Earth. But Jackson says he can figure it out and volunteers to go along so he can realign the Stargate on the other side so the team can return. General West okays the mission and Catherine gives Jackson her amulet so he can bring it along as good luck. Shiny. The team steps through the gate and comes out inside what seems to be an Egyptian temple on a desert planet called Abydos. Now, I was looking around for the name of this planet, and I actually don't think it's it's named in the movie. It's not named until we get to the show. Right. So I don't think anybody calls it Ab- Abydos until the show. So there's a pyramid that stands behind the temple where the Stargate resides. Jackson tells the Air Force team that he actually doesn't know how to realign the Stargate. To get back home. Your job here is to realign the Stargate. Can you do that or not? I can't. Uh, He doesn't know the proper order of the alignment of the symbols or the planet's point of origin. He believed another cartouche would be waiting for them on the other side with this information, but this was not the case. So all the soldiers get pissed off with Jackson and... O'Neill seems to accept his fate in stride and begins setting up in secret a Mark III nuclear warhead near the Stargate. So this is when the shit gets... It's real. This is when shit gets real. Yeah. What did you think about this? Like, at first I was like, it just makes no sense that Jackson would be like, yeah, I can get us back. And he's like, no, I can't. But then things get even darker when you see this warhead come out and it... You know, the script never really 
explicitly dives deep into O'Neill's state of mind, but you mm-hmm. you get what he's going through because of Kurt Russell's stoic performance, and you realize why he's on this mission now because they needed somebody who didn't have anything to lose. All of a sudden things, the stakes get a little higher with this bomb. I I struggled. I struggled like you did with the idea that Daniel Jackson would just be like, yeah, I'm good. And all the time knowing that he doesn't know. Right. But I think part of that is, to your point, there's like 400 hours of who Daniel Jackson becomes outside of this. And so it's, it's like growing up with someone your entire life. And then you find out when they were 12, they acted a certain way. And you're like, but that's not anything like the person I know today. So I, I tried to look at it and go, he was super excited. And again, he comes in and the character that we meet, James Spader is somebody who comes in and is like, I know everything. Like I've got this, like I know everything. And so with that attitude, I had to believe that he was thinking, oh yeah, of co- he would be overconfident in his ability to, to do it. This Daniel Jackson is like, of course, the information is going to be right there. Like, it'll be nearby and I'll figure it out. and It'll be fine. And if not, I'm not telling them anything that's not going to let me let them let me go on this mission. Of course. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, Clyde Haynes, Daniel Jackson, apologist. Thank you, sir. <laughs> well, that being said, it does get dark. And I, I was like, OK, so they're basically saying like, you know, and I'm rationalizing a bit. But you look and go, hey, we have to keep things safe. How do we, you know, we may, we have to make sure that no one can come through the gate to us, right? Now, the idea that this idea that the military is going to walk in and go, you know what, this isn't safe, so blow it up. Also funny because, (laughs) you know, similarly, I'm like, you go through the gate and as you're walking around, the first thing you do is start pointing guns. Right, like you just you got your guns out, um, and they're standing on the hill of that dude, you know, and you got two people with like they're looking at guns. Colonel O'Neill's the only one who's looking through binoculars. I'm like, y'all all can't have binoculars. Why you got to use your scope? Right, you're basically pointing a bullet at somebody just so you can see them. We all can't have binoculars. How hard would that be? Um, this this movie definitely does not depict the military in a flattering light. And I don't think the series does either, even though like most of the people, most of the characters in the series are, are part of the military. Cause it seems to me like the military is always just like, let's blow it up. Let's shoot it. Let's kill it. Let's dissect it. And Jackson always is always like, no, 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 no. So we're doing science stuff here. We're not blowing shit up. Um, but that's definitely present in this movie. Like the, the soldiers are all trigger happy. And they're kind of assholes, but they they straddle this line of like kind of being funny too, you know. You know when French Stewart tosses his suitcase, yeah, like down the dune, I, like like, and then his buddies like they're high fiving. I'm all like, dude, you want him to get you back, yet you just tossed all the books that he may need to reference how to do that down the side of a sand dune are you an idiot like that is counterproductive the answer is yes he's an idiot uh so so no to your point mike yeah like they they weren't the 
thoughtful military strategist that that we see military that are the portrayal of military people today. It, the the military just it feels like they're just winging it in this movie. Yeah. Like yes, yeah, we'll go if we don't. If it's kind of hard, we'll just blow it up. It'll be fine. Right. Uh, all right. So meanwhile, Jackson has a run-in with a local beast of burden, kind of like a horse camel pig. And uh, he's dragged across the desert. The team splits up uh, with one half under the command of O'Neill, running after Jackson while the others commanded by Lieutenant Ferretti, who is uh, French Stewart. French Stewart, yeah. They stay behind at the temple. After catching up with Jackson, O'Neill and the others discover uh, a group of primitive people mining uh, the precious metal or mineral that the Stargate is made out of. And upon spotting Catherine's amulet on Daniel, which has the Eye of Raw symbol on it, people immediately begin worshipping Daniel Jackson and his team, believing they were sent by Raw. The people take the team to their primitive city protects them from a coming sandstorm so o'neill's team remains at the city overnight while ferretti and his team are forced to retreat inside the temple due to the storm so this is like super cliche like when um but i'm not mad at it like it's super cliche where like the sci-fi hero shows up and meets the natives and the natives start worshiping him you know or like it happens with c-3po and return of the jedi and countless Mm -hmm. other movies but like, I'm not mad at it in this movie, just because I'm already along for the ride. And the way that Spader plays Jackson, where he's, like, immediately, like, not taking advantage of the situation. He's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Please don't worship me. This is not what we're doing. Right. It just reminds you that he's such a, a down-to-earth character who cares about people and he cares about the exploration. And it's just all around a good guy. Um, So that was cool. Even though this is like kind of cliche. Yeah, I have to agree. Like, it was like, okay. I mean, I did a question. It's like, why is he wearing this amulet? Shiny. But it moves the story along. And I think to your point, he doesn't, he doesn't take advantage of it. Um, he actually really becomes endeared to these people and he wants to understand them. And I think that's the Daniel Jackson that we'll, we'll learn to love is this one who's always wants to know more and wants to spend time. And it's like, Hey, really trying to see the people. And he does see the people because he gets offered a child bride, um, unknowingly married to Shari, the daughter of the patriarchal leader of the temple of the, of the people here, Kasif and O'Neill befriends Kasif's son, Skara. Now this is kind of all played for laughs. You know, it's like, Oh, here's a guy representing our gods. I'm going to give him my daughter. But again, it's just another scene where Jackson does the right thing and you like him for it. Some people, I've read some fans, like really love the love story in this movie. And it's kind of just non-existent. Uh, It's just kind of there. I don't get why Shari would fall in love with Jackson in 24 hours. Uh, But whatever. It's a movie. It's got a little bit of a meet cute. Like I saw them trading glances at each other. I guess. I mean, it just, it's, <laughs> it, it seemed like I, I kept telling myself, I'm not seeing everything. There's something else that's happening here that, you know, there's some conversation in between that I'm missing that, that is probably establishing it here. 
It's funny that you say that because this happens to me a lot when I watch this movie. Like the script is really thin, but the concept and everything that happens is really operatic. But what you just said happens to me with every character in this movie and how they relate to each other. Like, you know, when you watch Keanu Reeves in The Matrix or in John Wick and he's just such a blank cipher. I am an FBI agent. I know, man. Isn't it wild? I don't know if you do this, but I do this. When I see him and he's just such a blank, I end up like projecting what I want to project onto that character and filling in the gaps that the movie doesn't tell me. And it's like, oh, he's doing this because he feels this and is mm-hmm. thinking this. Even though the movie's not telling me any of this, I'm along with the plot of the movie is helping me do this. I'm putting it together in my mind naturally, even though it's not there in the text of the movie. And that's what I kind of do with this movie. Like a lot of stuff just kind of doesn't make sense, but it just kind of has to happen so the movie can keep going. And a lot of these character interactions don't have a lot of depth to them, but you're kind of just like filling in the blanks as you're watching it because it's just such a, because you want to, right? Because you're being entertained. Like if anything, this movie is fun and entertaining and even though there's a lot of cliche and predictable stuff, it kind of feels like you never know what's going to happen next or what surprises are going to be around the corner. So that's one of the strengths of this movie. So did you have? No, I was just going to say, I think, I think you're absolutely right. Like there's this, this idea of I'm filling in the blanks. I'm writing some of the backstory that I'm not given because I mean, the, the running time of the movie is two hours. To really develop the meat, the true meat cute, it it would be two and a half, three hours, right? Because we'd need more time with them. And really, again, this is a bit of a space Western. So we're to take it on face value that there was a spark. She saw him. He saw her. She's, you know, nice and thoughtful and more attractive than any woman he's ever dated. And he's gentle and kind and, you know, considerate and she's into that. And, and in her, in their culture, she was about to be married to him anyway and accidentally gets married to him. And so somehow they fall in love happily ever after the stars aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. In the middle of the night, an alien spacecraft lands on top of the pyramid behind the temple and several armored guards round up Ferretti and the rest of his team. So this was cool. It's it's kind of corny, but this was a pretty cool, like almost horror type scene where you see Ra's guards show up and they have those crazy uh, Egyptian dog headdresses on and they actually look a little intimidating. Mm-hmm. I, I like the design and the effects in this movie. The design of those headdresses were pretty cool. And the way they're shot in the dark here. Yeah, it's it feels threatening, especially to these like dumb soldiers. Like from a costume department, kudos, well done, you nailed it. Right again, it, it's got that grand feeling to it. So, and it's like, oh, this guy shows up brandishing these weapons. I might believe that they're a god. <laughs> like that works. Yeah, yeah. The whole like technology is indistinguishable from magic thing is really at play here with the the locals of the planet. I like the way the movie communicates that idea. Um all right, next Shari. Shuri, Shari, Shari. Shuri. All right. My phone's going to start talking to me. Uh 
Meanwhile, leads Jackson to a room filled with cave writings. He discovers that the people of the desert planet are ruled by an alien being posing as the sun god Ra. Posers were people that looked like punks, but they did it for fashion. Jackson discovers Ra achieved immortal life inside a human body and forces the people to mine the metal for his technology. So, yeah, the whole thing here is that. And this is where it gets convoluted. I never understood this until my second watch. It's so tell me if I'm wrong. And I'm pretty sure I'm right because I think they explained this again in Children of the Gods. So um, Ra is an asshole alien and his race was dying off. So he finds Earth and he takes possession of a young boy in Egypt. And Ra has a bunch of futuristic technology and powers. And so he tricks the people of Egypt to think that he is actually the ancient sun god Ra, right? Uh-huh. And the people of ancient Egypt rebel against him and force him through the Stargate and then bury the Stargate so he can't come back. So Ra now decides to oppress the people of this other planet that we're on now in the movie. Is that right? Very close. I thought that he was, that Ra was taking people from Earth and using them to mine the mineral on what we will learn to be Abydos. Yes, that's what right? I forgot. Yeah, these these so, are Earthlings that are brought yes. to this planet. Yeah. And while he was there on Abydos, like, that's where he was, his base was. Earth was just basically, like, the source of, of slave labor. Gotcha those enslaved Egyptians rose up, rebelled, you know, and buried the gate. Like they figured out, you know, because they read and they could write, they figured out that in order to save themselves, they had to bury the gate. And once burying the gate, he could not return. They essentially just like blocked his Uber account. So you can't come over. Basically, Gotcha. Okay. So Lieutenant Kowalski finds another cartouche with the return coordinates for the gate. However, the seventh symbol is missing and is now uh, indecipherable. So convinced they will be trapped on the planet forever, the team head back to the temple, but O'Neill and Jackson are captured and brought before Ra. Ra presents them with the bomb O'Neill planted, and Jackson is horrified to discover what the colonel had been planning to blow up the Stargate uh, if all went wrong. So Anil attempts to kill Ra, but he's overpowered and Jackson twist is killed in the struggle, but not really. So what did you think about the characterization of raw in this movie? I was, ha- have you seen the crying game before this or did you ever see that movie? I have seen it. I don't think I saw it before this. I had actually watched The Crying Game before this. I was just an indie movie nerd and when I was younger. And um, Jay Davidson, was nominated, who plays Raw in this movie, was nominated for an Oscar in The Crying Game. Uh, did not win, but it was a, a striking, unforgettable performance in that movie. That movie is a, a mystery crime noir drama, but it has a lot of depth to it. It's really good. And... Jay Davidson's character in that movie is a trans woman. And so it was, and that's part of the reveal in the movie. And this is all played pretty, pretty, 
I guess, eloquently for the nineties in that movie. Mm -hmm. So it's done, it's done pretty well. So I like for this, for Jay Davidson's follow-up role for the crying game to be this giant blockbuster sci-fi movie in which he plays the sun God raw, who's really an alien was pretty unexpected and kind of wild. And I think it was a great choice. Like raw as depicted in this movie is definitely visually distinct from everyone else in the movie. And it definitely has a different like vibe than everyone else. I don't really care for the, the audio effects on the voice, Mm -hmm. but like, I feel raw has more power when he's silent and just being threatening that way. But how'd you feel about the depiction of raw? You know, it's tricky because if you're going to do this, you have to, it's like when someone goes, Hey, Mike, I want you to depict an Egyptian God and put it on film. You got to have a, you got to have a plan. Um, and I thought that what they did was the way Ra would walk into a room, like majestic, slowly, like regal. I am in no rush, regal, really in every scene, menacing, right? Like what was interesting to me is when you look at kind of this character, the features are soft, right? Yeah. Everyone else, all his guards are massive and muscular, right? And just just look like they've been in the gym for hours every day. Whereas Ra is like, my power comes from such a place that I don't have to look and embody that. And I think that was interesting. And so it jumps off as like, man, that's a dude you don't want to mess with. Right? Yeah, he, he doesn't need to do a steroid cycle to, to be intimidating. I like to break a mental sweat too. So, yeah, apparently he kills Jackson. Jackson awakens in a sarcophagus and encounters Raw, who tells him that he plans to send the nuclear bomb back to Earth with a dose of the uh, sci-fi metal, increasing its power 100-fold, which pretty much blow up Earth. Raw tells Jackson to kill his comrades before the people of the planet to validate Raw's position as their god. If Jackson refuses to do this, Raw will kill him. And we'll kill everybody. This part, I didn't understand. It made for a cool scene where like uh-huh. Spader pretends to, that he's going to kill, you know, his buddies and turns the spear gun, which is really cool. Like a spear laser gun, uh-huh. turns it on raw. And then the kids show up with the guns and like, I'm not one for arming children, but Hey, works in this movie. Kurt Russell shouldn't known better than to give guns to kids, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> but this kind of didn't make sense to me. Like, why would he bring Daniel Jackson back to life? Uh, there's probably no good answer to that question. No, well, he, he's saying that, you know, his rationale is that he wants his followers to understand that this person that they started to fall for, that he's the true God. And therefore, what he can do is, as a true God, he can make them do anything. He wants to co-opt, like, Daniel's influence. Right. And I'm like... Has this ever worked in any movie ever where the bad guy says you have to kill your friends? Like you've just given them a weapon. Like here's, here's an idea. Don't give your enemy a weapon. (laughs) So yeah, don't stand in front of your enemy, uh, bear midriff and give him a laser gun. Don't do that. Right. What I think is cool is this sarcophagus that can apparently like regenerate people and bring them back to life and resurrect people. It's like a, a BAFTA tank on steroids. Like yes. how come they don't 
bring this shit back home. I mean, this is this is this is the discovery. So, you know, not to get ahead of ourselves, but these are the elements that are so interesting about this is that Ra clearly has all this type of technology we haven't seen, which will then be the ground for the show. Because what's super believable is the military going, wait, wait a second. You mean to tell me there's really cool space tech and minerals that we can't find here. Oh yeah, no, we're not blowing this thing up. Go get some more of that. <laughs> like that's true. All of a sudden, I, you can find money to fund any program that you need. If it means I'm gonna go back and I can get my own sarcophagus. Oh yeah, yeah. give me one of those. I love the perspective you're bringing to this. Uh, talking about this movie because you you obviously done SG One rewatches and you're you're a fan. You're into fandom. Where I came into Stargate really was with Atlantis. That is my jam. I love Stargate Atlantis. It's just a fun adventure show. So I've only seen a handful of SG-1 episodes. So like just learning from you right now, how a lot of the concepts in this movie are really like are explored so deeply in SG-1. It kind of makes me excited to to watch more of that show as oh, we go through this. You're, you're in for a treat. I, I think Atlantis... Is a great watch. And to me, kind of doing a Star Trek parallel, Atlantis is like coming in at Discovery. Like you can come in and and feel like, man, I'm watching something new and it's been updated Mm -hmm. and the tech is better and the special effects are better and and great. Whereas SG-1 is like watching the next generation Deep Space Nine and Voyager, right? Like it's got this, the format is a little bit different. The stories are a little bit different. It's much more episodic. But it's what's interesting about it is in the middle of the space battle, you're still getting these deep, deep, deep character arcs. You know, what we don't see in Star Wars and Star Trek is in both of those, everybody's kind of even. Mm-hmm. Here, what you get in, in Stargate is this sense of there's aliens out there I didn't know that. They have cool stuff, better stuff than me. How do we, how do, what do we do with that? And right now in the movie, they're at a place where like, oh man, this is scary. We got to, we got to fight back. We got to get home. And then it'll be like, hey man, we made it home. Oof. Did you bring any of that stuff back with you? Well, no, I was just trying to get home. Okay. Can we go back and get some of that cool stuff? I didn't think about that. Yeah. Let's go get the cool stuff. I do like that. I do like that. It's just like modern humans who don't know what the fuck they're doing, (laughs) stepping into these, you know, unthinkable, crazy situations. Uh, Unlike Star Trek, where we're already in the future and we're already evolved, right? Or unlike Star Wars, like you said, everybody is the same. Everybody has the same technology. Here, it's just us. We don't even have, like, SG-1 doesn't even have a fucking iPhone, and they're out there, you know, dealing with people who have spaceships and shit. Right. Right. Like, <laughs> like this is like 94. We weren't really, like, GPS was a thing that only the military used, right? <laughs> right. Like, we're so, like, we talked about at the beginning of, the, of, of this pod, is that we're so excited about the translucent 
like map that shows us where it is. I'm just mm. like, that's basically find your phone for your probe. Like, yeah. That's all that yeah. is. <laughs> right. And we're like, oh, that's cool. But that's where we were at the time. And, you know, the aliens got, you know, the pyramid and the ship that, you know, first of all, they have a ship, right? Like it's a ship shaped like a pyramid and then the sides come down and sits on top of a pyramid and you got sarcophagus and bejeweled hand bangles and stuff like i mean <laughs> yeah and that, that those cool uh beaming rings that come down oh, man those are dope the beaming rings are, like that's that is just cool that's a fucking badass visual like that is, is. like chef's kiss on that like there's somebody in the star trek universe going oh mm. man why didn't we ask ring? We should have had rings on our transporter. That would have yeah. been way cooler than just the, the transporter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause that's what it is. It's basically a transporter, but it's yeah. got rings. Yeah. With a cool sound. We talk about the sounds like, like, oh yeah, man, all the sounds are great. The sound of the wormhole, the sound of like traveling through the gate. It's all an experience in this movie. Yeah. All right, so Jackson fires at Raw. Uh, the kids start shooting the place up, and then they run away. Uh, Jackson forces O'Neill to reveal his orders to everybody about the bomb. And then Jackson explains Raw's plan to use the bomb, which he stole. Jackson and O'Neill have a brief but deep exchange about how life is something worth fighting for. If not for yourself, then for those who are depending on you. When he finds Skara... Sketching a drawing of their successful escape from Ra, Jackson discovers the point of origin for the planet, which means that they can go back home on Stargate. So this is probably one of my favorite scenes where Jackson and O'Neill just kind of do a little bit of real talk because Jackson realizes that O'Neill doesn't mind this being a one-way mission because he has nothing to lose and he's essentially suicidal. O'Neill lets Jackson know about the death of his son and doesn't really let him in that much because this movie does not know how to go that deep. But I think these two characters play that little scene out just enough to where you feel that they come to an understanding of each other and an understanding that they both have to uh, do what's right in this mission or at least do what's right to get the plot of the movie going. I don't want to die. Your men don't want to die. And these people here don't want to die. It's a shame you're in such a hurry, too. Anyway, this scene could have been a lot deeper and darker and better in another movie, but it works in the context of this movie. And I just like these two, like, having a moment of real talk with each other. Yeah, like, I think for for me, this was the moment where they started to see each other. They had been moving around each other for quite a bit and kind of dealing with each other. You're you're the commander of the mission, and I'm the smart guy, and... Like you're the, dweeb. you're the guy that I got to deal with to get me home or at least get my men home. Like, but you know, I'm on my own thing for them to come together and go, no, we need to have the same agenda, the same mission. It, it's almost like this dark cloud was lifted off of O'Neill. I guess the way I would put it is he had been in so much pain and so much hurt that there was this dark filter around him where he really couldn't see anything. And all of a sudden it's lifted and he started to remember who he was, what he stood mm. for, right? Because he's yeah. a colonel, which means that he's, you know, he he's pretty pretty good at what he does. And all of a sudden, he started to remember that. And this is that moment. This is that redemption arc moment that I was like, okay, 
I can, I can, I can like Kurt Russell again. He's, he's, he's moving like the Kurt Russell. I know. Okay. Yeah. It's at this point, he just turns full on action hero, which is kind of a rah, rah moment. Um, and it's funny because he's like, no, don't get these kids, these guns. But then later on, he's like, yeah, yeah, just give them the guns. Uh, it's fine. But, um, so they hatch a plan, right? The, um, the younglings, the, the younglings, and again, um, and the team, the military team advance on Ra's temple, but Jackson, O'Neill, and Shuri are trapped inside. Kowalski, Ferretti, Skara, and the others are trapped outside, and they're assaulted by two of Ra's flying death gliders, which are pretty cool. Oh, um, man, one of the coolest ships in any like sci-fi franchise ever. They're cool, only bested, I think, by the Wraith darts in Atlantis. <laughs> So. Yeah, the Wraith Dart. The Wraith are just so scary. Like, that's the problem. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, they're very scary. Um, inside the temple, O'Neill sets the bomb for seven minutes when Shuri is killed by a guard. Jackson uses the, oh, they're called transportation rings. <laughs> so Jackson uses the rings to go aboard Raw ship and bring her back to life with the sarcophagus. I thought that was a funny scene. Like, when... He just goes up and like, there's no security, nobody watching. He just gets to use raw sarcophagus to bring his girlfriend back. And then there's this funny shot of like raw and all his people in the temple. And then in the background, you just see Jackson like carrying Shuri, like running around and raw's like, what the fuck? What is that? It's just probably not supposed to be a comic visual, but it is pretty funny. Espionage and hijinks all in one. So, after Jackson and Shari escape off Raw ship, O'Neill attempts to disarm the bomb, but discovers it has been rigged. He can't stop the countdown. It's going to explode. Um, meanwhile, uh, Kasif, the leader of the people at the settlement, uh-huh. he leads the rest of the townspeople to fight Raw's forces. And Raw, realizing that they are rebelling against him, uh, gets in his ship, takes off into space. But O'Neill and Jackson send the bomb aboard Raw's ship with the uh, transportation rings. The bomb goes off, killing Raw, destroying the ship. Totally cool, classic space explosion visual. Made me wish we had more outer space stuff in this movie when I saw this. Mm-hmm. But yeah, pretty epic like conclusion to this whole wild adventure that they were on. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought this was great. And and the, one of my favorite scenes ever is O'Neill smashing the hand with the bedazzled bangle um, to activate the transporter ring. <laughs> the look on Ra's face, like, what, what? I like how he he decapitates that guy with the, uh, with, with the ring, just the ring. sticks his head in the platform for the ring. In my regards to King Todd, asshole. Like, you know, somebody's going to get there, like some body part cut off by this thing. Yes. So when it happens, you're like, yeah, that was supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Okay. So O'Neill and his men return to Earth, but Jackson chooses to stay behind with Shari. And before O'Neill leaves, Jackson hands him Catherine's amulet. Jackson says to tell Catherine that it brought him luck. O'Neill agrees. And after bidding farewell, steps through the Stargate. The end. So when this ended, I felt like the story was just beginning. And I'm not just saying this because I know there's like so much more with the television series, but you really felt like 
something that you love happened. Oh, these these guys became a team. Uh-huh. They respect each other. They know each other. They like each other. Now they can pull off some big shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that the Stargate is still active and what does that mean? What can it do? Jackson's going to stay with these people. He's going to learn so much more. Like you feel like, oh, I want to watch the next chapter. And it makes sense that Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich were like, hey, this is going to be a trilogy. We can make a bunch more of these movies, but they never got to. Because it it really does feel like um, this was the start of a franchise. And it's so wild that it was just a one-off movie until the series came along like four or five years later. Much like Indiana Jones, again, kind of bringing that reference back, you watch it and you're like, oh, there'll be more adventures. You know, and I think what the series did, and we'll get into that um, later, is it really expanded kind of the villain space, if you will, right? The because because the movie almost felt it had it set up like, oh, Raw was this kind of lone person or race, and then we get to go, oh no, like we really can do more and more of this, and so it would have been interesting to see a sequel movie and what they would have done and how they might have approached who the big bad is in, in that film. Yeah. Because what you discover in the show is that the Stargate can go to countless other worlds that huh? typically usually look like the, the forest of Canada, but sometimes can look different. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's fun and exciting. It's definitely a great idea for a television show. And just like the movie, like it's a great concept and it's communicated in such an epic like fashion and it's super fun to watch. So it just made sense that there would be more of this. Yeah. Um, And I, I love where this series went. Like all the mythology is really cool and really fun. And then the spinoff shows are each have their own flavor, but mm-hmm. they still, they still really support like what this movie laid as the groundwork right and it's always just about exploration um which i love and i I do like that it gets a little less militaristic as it goes on or at least the military isn't shown in such a negative light as as things go on but the series just gets really fun and adventure and it's all about exploration and and about friendship and teams and, and it's a great series um it's like not the smartest series in the world. It's not the most like intellectually stimulating, but um, it's definitely an essential sci-fi series. If you're a fan and you haven't seen Stargate, it's time to watch some Stargate. So just so you got to know, you got to know that Stargate has 10 seasons. Yeah. And Stargate, just SG-1. SG-1. Just SG-1 has 10 seasons. Atlantis is like five. And SGU is two. Yeah. And so the thing about it is, and this is, this is not, we're not talking about like 13 episodes a season. We're talking about like 22. Yeah. So you got a lot of episodes. And what we know about when we back when we had 22 episodes, especially in the 90s, is surprise, they're not all gold. Surprise, there's some filler. Yeah. And so, especially, especially with any sci fi series that's in its first season, it's still figuring itself out a little bit. Yeah. But as you stay with it, like like you said, the 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 mythology just is really powerful, and the character development is really powerful. And so I like that what we're talking about is kind of looking at those essential episodes. Um, 
you know, the technology gets, gets better. It's actually like, I, I do really love it. And like, I'm excited to talk, talk about it with you to revisit it. Um, and the other thing that like, if you're a true sci-fi fan, you'll start to see how intertwined these worlds are, right? When you're seeing um, like, you're a big Atlantis fan, right? Well, one of the things that you know is that in one of the later seasons of Atlantis, and this character actually shows up in the later seasons of Stargate SG-1, is that you have a pretty, I'm not going to give it away, but you have a pretty significant Star Trek actor who, yeah. who you know, is, is in a role in Stargate. You'd be surprised how what the crossover is between the shows. And so it becomes one of those things where it's like, oh, well, if I'm really into to, to Star Trek, or I'm really into sci-fi, then these this is becomes one of the pivotal shows. Like when you start talking about like the crossover between Stargate, Star Trek, Farscape. Firefly. Firefly, right? Like these are these are some of the series that you have to you have to consume a little bit to to truly understand the landscape. You know, um, and I would be missed if I didn't talk about Battlestar Galactica. But these are the ones yep. where you go, okay, I need to understand if I really want to understand the kind of the landscape of sci-fi. It's the essential sci-fi of our time, right? And yes. Stargate's one of them. I mean, everything you mentioned, Firefly, Star Trek, uh, BSG, uh, big time. But definitely Stargate. And I'm excited to dive into Stargate. Like I said, I haven't watched a lot of SG-1. We're covering like the essential episodes. There'll be like 12 in this first season that we'll cover. So it's like half of the episodes in the uh-huh. first season. So we're not going to dive into the whole thing. Uh, listener, if you want to know which episodes we'll be covering, there will be a link in the show notes to a list that GateWorld.net put up of the essential SG-1 episodes. You know, if you're a Stargate fan or if you're just getting into Stargate, go check them out. They're like the ultimate resource for Stargate fandom. Oh, yeah. All right. So, Clyde, thanks for diving into this movie uh, with me. And uh, next time we're going to talk about Children of the Gods, the uh, the movie-length premiere of Stargate SG-1 with uh, Richard Dean Anderson. And uh, who's the guy who plays Jackson? What's that guy's name? Oh, he put me on spot. Michael Shanks as uh, Daniel Jackson and Amanda Tapping plays a new character. And then, um, uh, don't give it away. Don't don't give the the fourth character away. That's so good. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Yeah. So we get a whole new cast. I don't want to get into it too much, but I watched children of the gods right after watching this movie and I had a great time. I think that's a great way to watch it. Just a double feature. Uh, so do that, watch that movie and listen to our next episode. You can find us, um, Find a pod on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, everywhere. Uh, follow the pod on Insta and threads at Intergalactic Pod. Visit intergalacticpod.co for links to all that shit. Uh, Clyde, where can people find you online? You can find me at Clyde Haynes. That's where I'm at. Find me at Mike Moody Garcia. And Clyde, you're still co-hosting Star Trek Discovery Pod, right? Yes, we have a podcast that comes out. Kind of, we do a live pod on Thursdays. We're kind of in between seasons, but we cover all the Star Trek kind of shows. So Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, Prodigy, Strange New Worlds, and anything else that comes out. So yeah, that's where I'm at. If you want to listen to me talk more about Star Trek, Star Star Trek sci-fi, and you'll even hear a SG One reference here and there because I do love these shows. Yeah, check that out at Star Trek Discovery Pod. And thanks for listening.